Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Peter Wirtz, who is the Scientific Director at Nightingale Health. If you've listened to our podcast with Professor Sir Rory Collins of the UK Biobank, you probably would have heard him mention Nightingale as one of the things he's really excited about for the future. So I was really excited to get the chance to talk to Peter. I've been following Nightingale for a long time since I first heard them mentioned in a talk. I think it was from uh, uh, Mike Inoue at Cambridge, who's a cardiometabolic researcher. And, and he also thought that the platform was um, the, the future of how uh, metabolomics will be measured and, and make a valuable contribution to precision medicine. Um, so we're going to go into what all of this means. But the company Nightingale also, I think, uniquely has a consumer facing test that allows people to measure things like cholesterol, triglycerides, branched-chain amino acids, all sorts of things. So they're quite a unique company in that they have an exciting scientific platform and technology, but also have not just research applications, but consumer applications. So Peter, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Um, and I wonder if you could just start by telling us about yourself, your, your background, and uh, how you found your way to Nightingale. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so uh, I'm... I grew grew up in in Denmark and and studied chemistry and physics and uh, slowly drifted into biotechnology and moved to Finland um, because of my wife about 15 years ago uh, and there I got into studies of proteins and biophysics uh, doing doing my PhD um, and. Uh, one of the best ways to study protein structure and composition is using a technique called nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, uh, which can measure the detailed uh, structure and comp composition of, of proteins. Um, so that, that's kind of how I came to Finland. But then when I was finalizing my PhD, uh, I was intrigued to go into more medical applications of, of these uh, technologies. Uh, and I was lucky to get into a group uh, research team, which has just set up a high throughput platform to measure thousands and tens of thousands of blood samples using this uh, nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy technique. Uh, so I thought that was a kind of a nice way to combine my uh, expertise in, in measurements uh, of large sample numbers and computational analysis, uh, but facing a more medical, early applied um, research area. And it turned out that this uh, technology that uh, my fellow co-workers had set up, uh, it worked way better than anybody had anticipated. It was almost right from the beginning, a big success uh, in large population health studies, mainly studying the molecular mechanisms of heart disease and diabetes. But uh, just around the time when we started uh, on, in, on the university settings, uh, around 10 years ago, uh, a revolution in genetics was happening where it was possible to measure for the first time tens of thousands of, of uh, samples with genetic data. And many of the leading figures in genetics and genomics, they were keen to combine the detailed uh, blood measurements that, that our technology using a nuclear magnetic resonance could do together with the genetic data. And they had seen from earlier genetic studies that the larger sample size you had, the better the science. 
the better the confidence in the results. And especially if you could combine the results, not only from one single large study, but combining multiple studies from different places. And the Nightingale technology uh, that eventually emerged out, out of, of these efforts uh, is exactly doing that. It could measure um, blood biomarkers and metabolites and lipids at the scale of tens of thousands. And the results were really consistent across different studies. So it was a perfect match to integrate uh, together with genetics. And, and once that uh, took off, in particular in the Netherlands and the UK and the, in the Scandinavia, many of the leading researchers in genomics, they, they told their friends that this is great. And then we were overwhelmed with demand. And, and it was very clear that there was kind of big business opportunity also to set up a company out of this technology. When you started working with the UK Biobank, for example, what was the initial goal to to do the profiling on 10, 10 20, 30,000 samples, see what, uh, see what comes out of it and then make a plan from there? Or, or was it clear from the beginning that this could be applied across the whole half a million people? Yeah, so in the beginning, we were measuring sample sizes of, of a few thousand, maybe up to 10,000. That was kind of for a long time, the biggest studies that were technologically possible uh, to, to measure. Uh, and then the, the different studies they combined uh, together that you could get to sample size, maybe 20,000 up to 50. 50,000 is still many of the largest studies that have been published so far around that sample size. But we uh, had the opportunity to work together with the team in Oxford, that many of the people who set up UK Biobank, and we had uh, we established an on-site um, magnet in, in Oxford. And, and the, many, the, the, the professors there, they saw that the technology was, was really good, both in delivering scientifically relevant results but also in terms of the analytical accuracy and the scalability. So I think that helped everybody to think, okay, what could we do as a next step? Could we one day even measure all half a million samples from UK Biobank? Uh, and that was for me and, and, and many, many people for a long time, like the scientific goal that we would one day measure all of the, the samples. And um, the UK Biobank has a policy that they don't split the, the cohort into subsets of samples that they measure case control studies with 5,000 or 10,000 here and there. So when we first had discussions with Sir Rory Collins, he said that, well, come back when you can measure half a million. And then maybe one or two years later, we came back and said, okay, look, we believe we are ready if you're ready. So what kind of information do you get? Obviously, you have the genetic data that you only need to measure once um, and and then what you all provide is is it a small handful of um, proteins that you're looking for is it thousands is it hundreds of thousands and and what do you then do with the with the output data we could take an example like um, if you if you're looking at uh, cardiometabolic disease or, or something like that yeah so so how the nightingale blood test works is that it takes from a single sample with essentially no sample preparation, all we do is add a buffer. We measure like a, a kind of molecular signature of what are the um, metabolites that are highly abundant in the blood samples. This could be lipids, a few proteins like albumin, which is the most abundant protein, 
some small molecules like amino acids that are freely circulating in the in the bloodstream ketones and then fatty acid composition uh, like omega-3 omega-6 all of this we get from a single measurement and then researchers can either analyze the individual data like say amino acids against the say uh, cardiometabolic diseases like diabetes but they can also use the full information uh, of the whole biomarker profile that comes out of nightingale uh, test to to get even better predictive uh, information of say future disease risk because diseases like diabetes and heart disease they're not only uh, reflected by a single measure like the lipid levels or glucose levels but really many molecules in the bloodstream are indicative both for the current health but also as much for the risk of a progression to more severe disease states well, you had a, um, a research paper or a preprint that you put out on MedArchive really recently, which I thought was an amazing um, exemplar of this, where you you profiled, um, I don't remember exactly how many people it was, but you profiled people who had um, COVID-19 and were able to predict whether they would be more more or less severe. Um, and, you, and you also were able to predict, for example, to some extent, who could get, who would get severe pneumonia and, and who would recover relatively safely how how did that come about it seems like an amazing um thing and i know you're rolling it out in uh, in finland at least um to to offer this testing to people so that you can better triage who who needs um urgent care and who doesn't is that right that's right it, it, it's a it's an exciting study traditionally nightingale's technology has mainly been used to study uh, diabetes and heart disease and that was also the consumer product that we rolled out uh, in the beginning of, of the year, that we're testing heart aids and, and risk for future diabetes. But there have been some scientific studies earlier showing that some of the biomarkers are also indicative of the risk of, in the future, getting severe infections, being hospitalized for infections or even dying from infections. That could be pneumonia. Uh, it could be also uh, sepsis. Um, and and kind of other some of the most severe complications of of getting infectious diseases. So we thought that it might be possible uh, that also the overall blood biomarker profile that we capture for Nightingale could be uh, indicative of those people who, if they get the uh, COVID nineteen, that they will have a more severe form of disease or be unable to respond in their immune system uh, and hence um, be, be, get a more severe form of the disease, be hospitalized or perhaps e even die from the disease. Whereas other people who have a more strong immune response, uh, they, that, that may be reflected in the overall blood metabolic profile, that those could then be the ones who are less likely to develop more severe disease. And with the UK Biobank, uh, we had for the first time the possibility to, to test uh, this hypothesis. And the timing worked uh, well by various coincidences that we had the planned release of the first set of data from UK Biobank with a little over 100,000 individuals. That was uh, 
uh, released uh, in end of May 2020. And about the same time, UK Biobank also released data, uh, the first data on, on COVID-19 status uh, for participants in UK Biobank. So it happened that around 200 individuals or so in, in the subset that we had measured with the Nightingale technology, they were hospitalized um, for, for COVID-19. And then we were able to show that indeed the overall blood metabolic profile, not, not a single biomarker, but, but the combined information of an overall uh, molecular signature or blood biomarker profile could actually predict even, uh, kind of who would get uh, eventually hospitalized uh, from COVID-19. And, and this is despite that the blood samples in UK Biobank, they were measured uh, around 10 years ago. So it's clearly nobody back then had uh, infection when they came to give the, the blood, blood sample and, and of course, certainly not COVID-19. Um, so, so there is, what, what we see is that there's clearly something in the overall blood metabolism that reflects if you get a disease like COVID-19, like pneumonia, like sepsis, do you have a response, a defense system to, to, to get it? And it, 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 it works surprisingly well. It's, it's kind of, I think it could be something that could not only be helpful for COVID-19, but we, we have now every, all heard that also yearly influenza season is kind of very, uh, kind of um, has a big impact uh, on, on the health of, of the every population. And this is actually could be a tool that we can identify the high risk group. So what we see overall is that there's around 10 to 20% of the generally healthy individuals who were enrolled into UK Biobank uh, who had this overall blood biomarker signature that indicates that if they get a disease, it, it is much more severe than for those who don't have this kind of metabolic signature reflecting the immune response. Um, so, so we believe this could be a really powerful tool to, uh, to prioritize who can go back to work or who should better stay at home, who should be very, very careful in terms of their social distancing. And in particular, now that vaccine results already looks fairly promising, we believe that this could be also a tool to prioritize who is seemingly healthy, but would actually strongly benefit from being a first line for, for the event, eventual vaccines. Uh, that that are hopefully coming already. So so we we believe this is a powerful new tool to complement uh, the exciting developments in in antibody screening and, and these things are kind of rapid trials. Once you have an infection, do kind of how likely are you to get the disease? But but we are bringing something new that you can actually from your molecular profile identify before you get the disease if you are at risk. That's incredible. Have you do you have any insight as to what it is precisely that's that's driving these major differences? I know you mentioned the immune system, but is it that it's not maybe not mounting a response quickly enough, or is it that it's mounting too much of a response? So the you know because I know we get these you can get these cytokine storms that then the body essentially overcorrects and and um, unleashes 
too much of an immune response. Do you have any any understanding of what might be happening? The the exact molecular mechanisms are, are poorly understood. Uh, this is an area of, of active research. Uh, there are some earlier studies looking at, at some of the key biomarkers that are inflammatory proteins that are kind of like known in the scientific literature that if you have chronic inflammation, your uh, possibility to have a, a kind of a strong immune response may, may be uh, impaired compared to if, if you don't have chronic inflammation but but the markers of chronic inflammation that are captured in the nightingale profile are slightly different from the ones that are traditionally measured such as high sensitivity c reactive protein uh, that is a good predictor of future disease but it's very responsive also to acute infection and and the protein or inflammatory biomarkers that we see from the nightingale panel they are shifting very little with acute infection. They are kind of more stable if you do the measurements, say one week later or a few one, one month later, you generally have uh, the same profile where some of the um, more reactive pro proteins and uh, traditional uh, inflammatory protein markers, they are hard to, to use for preventative screening settings because you may have a high uh, readout, and then if you come back a few weeks later, you maybe have a low low readout. Um, so uh, as a screening tool, this works well, but there's kind of more and more new questions that we open every time we do studies like this in terms of the molecular biology uh, that I think we're, we're kind of uh, just scratching the surface and understanding what it is. And one one fascinating aspect is that it's not only the, sort of textbook inflammatory biomarkers that we capture, but it's as much, for instance, the fatty acid balance in the blood, say how much of omega-6 fatty acids compared to monounsaturated and saturated fatty acids in the blood uh, that also reflects this kind of immune uh, response. It's some of the amino acids that have been linked with diabetes and other diseases, but but they don't kind of, the, the overall signature of infection risk or, or the immune response doesn't follow the same pattern as, for instance, the risk of diabetes. Uh, so many of these biomarkers that we measure, they are definitely not textbook measures of immune system or inflammatory biomarkers. But we have seen both in the UK Biobank and also earlier studies from across Europe that this is uh, kind of something that we, we, we see uh, consistently in, in many different studies. Do you have any um, understanding of whether this kind of predisposed state is something that could be modified by changes in diet, lifestyle, you know, t taking something, or is it that, you know, 10 to 20% of the population for some intrinsic genetic or, or otherwise reason have a immune state that for whatever reason predisposes them to more severe COVID-19 or, or, or some of these other diseases we've, um, we've discussed, or is it something that people arrive in that state by, you know, based on, um, you know, you, the fact that you mentioned omega-6 and omega-3, I wonder if it is, does have a link in some way to 
you know, dietary intake of omega-6 and omega-3. I realize some of this, it might, the answer might be we don't know yet, but I'm, I'm just curious about how much you do know. Yeah, it's an intriguing question. Uh, overall, the, the, the blood biomarker profile is quite modifiable. Uh, say if you lose weight, if you change your diet, it is possible to change these biomarker levels. So it's certainly not so that you're stuck with a high uh, level and there's nothing you, you can you can do about it in, in contrast to, for instance, polygenic risk. But since some of this is reflecting inflammation, uh, it's, it's hard to modify uh, with, say, existing medications. There's like nothing like the same way as a lipid-lowering uh, medications where we know exactly we have a pill that lowers LDL cholesterol and we know the mechanisms, how it does that. Uh, the, it, it's kind of commonly the, the sort of standard advices about living a more healthy lifestyle, uh, lose weight, more, uh, more healthy diet that we, we still give as, as advice to improve your overall biomarker profile. Um, but this is also an area of uh, a lot of research and it may be uh, that there are specific uh, also medications, for instance, uh, anti-inflammatory medications that are now coming coming to market or even uh, certain dietary um, supplements that may uh, partly uh, improve this uh, overall biomarker profile. For instance, omega-3 uh, have now been shown in cardiovascular uh, health uh, studies to to kind of in, improve the or, or lower the risk for, for high dose of certain omega-3 fatty acids. So I think this is uh, kind of nicely complements kind of what you can track yourself and see over time what, what works for you. It may be not the same uh, lifestyle change, say more physical activity, maybe that works for some, uh, some dietary changes work for some people. So as we don't have a single solution for everybody now, uh, one can then see kind of over time and they also get motivation by doing the uh, kind of continuous blood, blood testing uh, to, to see if you can get yourself more on the right track. So there's, there's two big questions kind of on the people who are mostly healthy uh, and then they can still improve. And then those who are already, say, have subclinical disease uh, or kind of maybe older individuals and the doctor may need to make some decisions uh, I think there, uh, it, it's maybe not necessarily the same solutions that you would advise as you would for, for generally healthy individuals. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd really like to talk more about your your consumer proposition and how that works. I had one more COVID-related question, which is there's this emerging concern about people who have what are, many are calling long COVID, which is you have the acute phase, there's recovery but then for many people there's weeks or or months of um episodic severe symptoms shortness of breath fatigue are you all looking into whether there's blood biomarker signatures either before or after infection that can help identify people who are more more or less likely to enter that long covid um state we have primarily focused on the preventative screening scenario because uh, that's where we believe that we have something really unique to offer. But now that we see these, also these long-term effects, uh, I, I agree that it would be very interesting 
to also study study these uh, because it's we see again and again that it's not just a single uh, disease that that is affected by a single type of symptom. So the overall comprehensive metabolic profile that Nightingale captures, I think, can perhaps better reflect this kind of risk than if you're just looking at sort of each symptom in individually. And and we are in, in discussion with some investigators uh, in, in the UK about studying this, but, but there are no results yet. That's great. I'm really interested in hearing more about the company decision to go from primarily a research-facing application into into something that's more clinical or, or even now as of probably about two years ago, consumer facing. Um, I, I've heard you say before that it's really about closing that loop between discoveries that are made in the UK Biobank, for example, and making sure those get to the clinic and then ultimately to consumers as as rapidly as possible. And that's what I really like about your model because you have this end-to-end discovery all the way through to applications how how do you think about it and, and how did that decision come about for nightingale yeah so this was the decision we made about five six years ago among the the founders uh that we really want to take this technology beyond uh the success in a research setting and trying to make a bigger impact on preventative public health and and we believe this is a technology for for primary care, for consumers, uh, whereas many of the other uh, new exciting omics solutions, they maybe first come to specialized care, say sequencing or very, very detailed biomarker profiling with some other tools. We believe this is kind of more like a screening uh, technology and, and we want to show that it the, the costs are so low per sample base that this could come out and, and be used very widely. Uh, so so that's, we, we made a decision uh, and we had some of our initial investors, they were keen to to see if we could get all, all the way to that. And, and that has then been the drive and the motivation also for all the many new recruits that we have had over the years. So what does it actually cost to do a, a single sample and, and how what is the vision for the future, would you be doing something like this every, you know, every day, every week, every every month? What's the cadence that, um, if you wanted to do it, kind of true preventive preventive screening, population scale preventive screening, you could you could do it. Yeah, so uh, we we have a, a Nightingale owned clinic uh, in uh, that operates in Helsinki, and one can walk in and 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 donate blood and and in a few days later you get the results back on on your app and the price at the moment i believe is uh, 79 euros for for two tests so we sell this always as a package because we believe that the tracking yourself is really the key not as much as what are your levels at at the moment but are you on a track to improve or are you on a track to 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 get worse uh, so so the kind of uh, continuous tracking that that's a very core core concept for for this technology the how how often you should measure uh, is maybe not that well studied we we have seen from uh, in intervention studies uh, that are for instance changing diet that you will see effects already in a four week or eight week in interventions uh, so 
maybe like every every three months or something like that would be good uh if you do like more like say occupational health screening or na a national type of screening then maybe every year a little bit like a, a cholesterol test that that are many countries have like a, a screening cholesterol levels or, or blood blood sugar levels widely this would be natural to complement or even replace those kind of screens yeah, I guess here in the UK and in many parts of the world, there's a, there's an, a kind of equivalent metaphor for MOT testing of a car, where every year you have to take it in and and get the yearly checkup. And it seems like, like you said, on on a yearly cadence, having something like this could have profound implications. Where where would you see the the kind of lowest hanging fruit in terms of impact? Is it in um, is it in heart disease or, or cardiometabolic disorders or somewhere else? Yeah, so initially we we have studied many cohorts and biobanks and trials that have been focused around uh, heart disease and, and type 2 diabetes, partly because we have a strong lipid profile in, in the biomarker panel. So it was, it was a kind of natural uh, place to start in terms of understanding better disease mechanisms. Um, but in particular, in terms of, of heart disease, there are also... Uh, existing guidelines that saying if you can if you can you you calculate the risk for developing heart disease over say ten years, and if the risk is over a certain threshold, say ten percent, uh, you are you are indicated for for lipid lowering medication. So if you can show that measuring more detailed biomarkers can improve that kind of risk, there's already um, a model that that could information could change. Uh, the decision making uh, for the doctor or the patient. So that has been often like a, one of the first examples uh, that that have been been studied because other diseases, um, say uh, autoimmune diseases, it may be that you can identify risk, but it may be harder to to kind of see what what can you actually do about all kind of the cl clinical decision making. As a doctor, you see the uh, you see the risk and discuss with the patients but but will you alter what you do uh, i think uh, heart disease is, is probably one of the first areas but but from uh, a and we we have so, some evidence and we're working together with with a group in cambridge to to showcase also how many people we can better classify uh, in, in various risk categories in a similar manner that studies have been done with other biomarkers and genetic data um so so we we definitely believe we we can uh in, kind of identify some risk groups that would otherwise be missed uh there, there's no doubt about that um but i'm personally now more excited about all the other diseases than heart disease and, and diabetes where we see for instance the infectious diseases uh the new COVID. A uh, preventative screen uh, is is fascinating. Uh, pneumonia, sepsis, uh, renal disease, liver disease, and even even some of the autoimmune diseases, uh, where there's maybe not the same tradition for doing such large scale uh, biomarker studies and and preventative ac actions. Uh, so we are keen to work together with uh, leading investigators. Uh, on a scientific level, on a kind of what you can do as a doctor, as, as a patient, as a consumer um, with, with this kind of in information. 
What do you think it will take to to realize this vision of a kind of truly population scale, you know, yearly or, or quarterly test? Uh, it, what you said sort of reminds me of similar challenges in the polygenic risk score space, which is there's a lot of evidence that you can identify people um, that, that are at high risk for coronary artery disease or, or heart attack. Um, but it's it's another thing to convince the national health system or the people in the clinic that you should then, you know, genotype everyone once and, and integrate this information in clinical care. Are you seeing a similar kind of requirement where you need to now start working with hospitals or healthcare systems to to prove that the model works in, in practice? Uh, yes, I think there are, there are many parallels to, to the development in, in genetics. And, and we have been following and, and sometimes copying with, with pride some of the developments in, in, in genetics, where, for instance, in, in the early days of Nightingale, we, we were one of the few large-scale biomarker assays that could easily replicate across cohorts. The large sample size kind of made possibilities for for kind of uh, new new discoveries there of of also not so common diseases and and going then to UK Biobank and and showcasing uh, with the largest uh, data Biobank out there to to really showcase that uh, there are these these uh, risk groups that we can robustly identify Th- that's kind of very similar to the discussion in in genetics and and likewise. Uh, the, the discussions about okay, this is nice for 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 scientific discoveries, but what is the impact for for uh, on a on a clinical setting? Uh, there are also many parallels, and it's I think the healthcare system in Scandinavia is maybe not the most uh, uh, one that is uh, kind of pioneering such new solutions. Uh, so maybe places elsewhere uh, like. Um, in, in US and Asia, we have many, many discussions where there's a kind of uh, the, 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 the payers are looking at this from a different point of view that it may be not so that this changes the decision making for the individual cardiologist, but if it saves money for the hospital, then it's very clear decision to, to go for this widely. That's right. No, it makes complete sense. And is it the same with the consumer proposition? Are you I know you said you're active in um, in Helsinki. Is it an at-home test that people do, or do you have to actually go into a clinic to to draw blood? And and what what stops you from offering it around the world? Yeah. So at, at the moment, it, it it's a venous blood sample uh, that that is is drawn. Uh, but what we are now very excited about is the launch of of a, a self testing kit that we are rolling out in the autumn. And that can capture not all the 250 biomarkers from the Nightingale panel, but crucially the most important ones. For instance, for the COVID-19 preventative screen, we can capture the most important biomarkers. And and the same with with the most important biomarker for some of the other diseases. So uh, I believe this solves many of the logistic challenges that that has been maybe preventing some of the wider, wider scale rollout earlier uh, with, with easier uh, easier testing solutions and we have now we recently opened a lab in, in US and also we are now opening Japan uh, so kind of getting also on site with some of, of these um, big big markets that may be more amenable to new biomarker solutions uh, I think that will 
very much accelerate uh, the entry to to healthcare settings. Amazing, and and I imagine that the COVID nineteen test you're making could could be a real force for bringing this forward into the conversation because it's such an urgent priority. And if you can prove that it's effective here, um, like you say, you can maybe do the same with influenza or, or sepsis or um, or you know all these other groups of disease. So it seems like it's um, it's a good opportunity to not just solve the problem at hand, but also to kind of move move the whole field in in a more preventive and um, uh, you know less less reactive direction. Yeah, exactly. I think part of, part of this is kind of a mindset change that 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 we need. Uh, we need we need to to show the good evidence but that is rapidly accumulating but many times it's more about uh, people don't even realize that this is possible to measure before people contract the disease and it could have uh, such a strong uh, information about the future risk Uh, so I have no no doubt that this will find uh, widespread applications but kind of we need to work with the right right partners to to roll this out out widely. Absolutely, it, it seems like the sky's the limit. Um, so I'm just conscious of time here. I know you've got you've got a lot of other uh, important work to do today. Uh, if people want to keep track of you, Nightingale, the the work you're doing, um, I know they can they can follow you on Twitter. Is is there anything else you'd like to shout out if if you all have um, positions open for people to join your team? Or I, I know you're always looking for great research collaborators yeah exactly so we we always looking for 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 kind of uh, ta- for, for talent who people many people in nightingale they have a strong background in biomark uh, biobank research gen- genomics predictive models uh and and then the passion to really move beyond the focus of about the next publication uh, but rather the impact of kind of that that publication or kind of rollout, commercial rollout can, can really give. So and and now that we are looking more and more uh, in the US and, and Asia, we're, we're keen to kind of also uh, kind of enhance our operations on, on site there. Um, so have kind of you're always welcome to to email me if you're interested in these these topics or kind of we have a, a website that also uh, covers a bit more many details about our consumer service, uh, and and then um, we we are kind of also planning clinics many places around the globe. Great, your uh, his his Twitter is at Peter Vertz W Y R T Z S. You've you've helped uh, those of us who don't know how to pronounce the U with the umlaut by changing it to a, a Y. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Great. Well, thank you so much. Congratulations to you and and the rest of your team. And thanks for the incredible work, especially on, uh, you know, the company in general, but the COVID-19 work in general. I'm sure you're working around the clock to to make it happen. So hopefully this is a a ray of sunshine where we can use this to to find our way out of out of lockdown and um, and into a hopefully slightly brighter future. Thank you. I appreciate it. Pleasure to be here.